Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, we're going to talk about DBT with Maggie Boyer. So first, we're going to explain briefly what DBT is, and then Brittany is going to introduce our lovely guest. Woohoo! DBT stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and it's a type of CBT. Now, CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and it's based on the idea that our thinking patterns and behaviors maintain and add to our anxiety. So DBT has strategies that are additional to CBT, and those are things such as acceptance skills, mindfulness skills, interpersonal skills, emotional regulation skills, and distress tolerance skills. DBT was founded in the 1970s by Dr. Marsha Linehan, an American psychologist. Dr. Linehan created DBT while working with women who were having suicidal ideation. DBT has also been found in studies to be helpful for borderline personality disorder, depression, anxiety disorders, eating disorders, and trauma. Today we invited Maggie Boyer onto the show because Maggie is actually the person who introduced both Amy and I to DBT via a podcast that they did on Endo where they spoke about it. Maggie has a lot of experience and knowledge with DBT and we are so excited to have them here with us today. Maggie is also the author of several poetry collections, including When I Bleed, Poems About Endometriosis, which they published in 2021, and Ungodly, which they published in 2022. Yeah, I've actually read When I Bleed, and I really enjoyed it, and I do recommend it. It's very relatable, and the poems really spoke to me. I think that Maggie's really talented at expressing their pain and their experience through their poetry. And I also just think it's really cool that there is a book of poems about the endometriosis experience. Like, how cool is that? Creative expression of your pain and trauma is always a good way to deal with that. Maggie is a blogger and an essayist with a focus on endometriosis, fibromyalgia, post-traumatic stress disorder, and chronic pain. They've been featured in Borgian Magazine, Capsule Stories, Detour Ahead, Written Tales, Scribe, and more. They were the editor-in-chief of the Lariat newspaper, a quarter-finalist in Brave New Voices in 2016, and they were a Marilyn Miller Poet Laureate. Woo! They are talented. I hope one day I can have all those kinds of achievements. I know, my gosh. <laughs> they're so cool. All right, everyone. So let's welcome Maggie to the show today to speak about DBT. This is a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. Today we're here with Maggie to talk about DBT, which we are so excited about. We're just going to go ahead and introduce ourselves first. My name is Amy, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, everyone. It's Brittany, and my pronouns are she, they. And it's Maggie, and my pronouns are they, them. 
first, thank you for having me on because I'm such a fan of the show and have been for a really long time. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, I'm also a huge fan of DBT, so I'm very happy to talk about DBT. Um, I just wanted to say that I really like DBT over traditional talk therapy or CBT because I feel like sometimes CBT can kind of almost gaslight you. Like, you know, you know, this is like the situation and like you need to change it. And if you can't change it, like you can't change it. And I don't know, like they never really gave me any tools to fix the situation. It just said like, feel better, talk it out and feel better. But dealing with ongoing chronic pain or ongoing trauma or things like that can't always like change that and just be happy. And so I really liked DBT for giving kind of an array of tools and some of those being accepting, but other ones problem solving and kind of like how you accept something, you know, I think that there's a big difference uh, in the tools it gives you to in like how you accept something. So Maggie, I'd love to know more about what drew you to DBT and what kind of got you started on investigating and learning more about it and what your favorite things are about it. You touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to know more. I've always really been in therapy. And what's funny enough is that my therapy journey started because of my endometriosis. Uh, I think many of us probably have similar experience of, you know, going to the doctor, going to the GI, going to the emergency room and all of those things. And nothing coming back. And then them saying, you know, it's psychiatric, go to therapy. And that was, I think, the problem with CBT for me is because I was going to CBT while undiagnosed. And it didn't really ever help me get any further towards a diagnosis or towards dealing with my pain. And once I went to college and I kind of switched care, I found that I really wanted to treat my trauma specifically. So I did find trauma informed therapy. I included DBT and brain spotting. Brain spotting is like a bit more into the EMDR, eye movement therapy, uh, and kind of processing trauma. But DBT also gave me a lot of the tools it took to get my endo diagnosis, you know, acknowledging where in my body I was feeling physical sensations, mindfulness of my body, but then also not getting stuck in my body. I think that that was something that really drew me to DBT was that like, I didn't have to be stuck in a painful body to be mindful. Maggie, I love that one of the things that attracted you to DBT is the fact that it could teach you tools because I think that tools are really important and with the right tools, we can really grow and blossom and just come into having a better experience with our lives. So I'd love to talk about some of the tools that a person can learn through DBT. DBT teaches strategies like acceptance skills, mindfulness skills, interpersonal skills, emotional regulation skills, and distress tolerance skills. I think it'd be really nice to start with acceptance because acceptance skills are some of the hardest skills to learn, to practice, to maybe even understand what acceptance means to us. So I'd love to ask you, Maggie, what does acceptance mean to you? A great question. And one, if you haven't checked out Amy's book yet, you should, because it's really helpful about acceptance. So shamelessly plug so that she doesn't have to, because she probably won't. It's amazing though. But going into acceptance, I feel like there's such a difference between like 
acceptance and radical acceptance, which is a DBT skill. And acceptance can be more passive, like, I don't know, not to be controversial, but like looking at the pandemic, a lot of people have accepted that it exists and believe it and the science and things like that, but they maybe aren't taking the like active tools that really accepting it needs, like wearing a mask or getting vaccinated or this, that, or the other. But radical acceptance is being like, okay, this is the situation we're in. I'm going to use the tools available to me and then just deal with the emotions from there and just accept what I'm dealing with. I think it takes a lot of work to radically accept. Like it's not something that's passive. It's not something that's resigned. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to do the work to take these deep breaths to say, this is the situation. I'm going to look back. So I'm going to look at how I feel about it. I'm going to accept how I feel, but I'm also not going to let that stop me from living my life, building a life worth living or, you know, making that emotion drag on too long or anything like that. You know, it kind of just allows you to see everything for what it is and not have all that bitterness about it. Yeah. Something that I love about acceptance that I've found for myself is that acceptance can actually help me lead to making changes in my life. I found that with acceptance and with acknowledging that this is how things are right now, acknowledging without judging that. It really helps me say, as you said, this is how things are and just radically accept this is how things are. And that helps me get into a different state of mind where I can actually try to change the situation and find solutions instead of just like fighting against the situation and saying things like, this is so unfair and it shouldn't be this way and having that resistance. And it may be unfair and maybe it shouldn't be this way, but it is the way that it is. And so I find in my own case with acceptance, it helps me work through these emotions and judgments about the situation that are preventing me from finding a solution that are preventing me from taking steps to change the situation. I love all that. Talking about acceptance, it's like when I realized I had endo and I realized, or chronic pain and all these things going on, that was what had been causing, you know, my absenteeism at work and having brain fog and difficulty sleeping and all of these things. And I mean, just a thousand other things. Instead of ignoring that or saying, you know, this is reality, Uh, everybody feels this way. I said, this is reality. I don't like how I feel. It's not good to feel this way. It's not good to be sick every day, to not be able to hold down food. It's not good, but that is reality. And I don't like that reality. So what steps do I need to take to change that reality? So instead of just like wallowing in the pain or disassociating from the pain, I took steps to, you know, go to doctors, get second opinions, fight for what I needed and what path I really felt like I should go down, which was excision for me. A common phrase that I've been hearing come up is talking about using acceptance to propel yourself forward into making change. And I think one of the things that we struggle with when talking about acceptance is understanding the difference between what acceptance is and what resignation is or resigning ourselves to what we're dealing with. So Maggie, I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about your understanding of the difference between accepting and resigning. 
you have to use a lot of different skills to accept. And that's why it's not passive. That's why it's not resignation. Because when you resign, you're not really using those skills. You're just saying, oh, okay, I'm just going to wallow in it. And something DBT taught me is that there's pain and non-acceptance, and that's what creates suffering versus pain and acceptance. And that can create change and it's just pain, you know, and you can survive pain and it's not this suffering, you know? And so I think you realize that and you say, okay, let me check the facts, see what the situation is. What is the reality? What are all of my options? And there's usually four main options, which Amy has kind of already hit on, which is solving the problem or feeling better about the problem through emotion regulation, tolerating the problem and accepting your emotions around that problem, which is kind of what I was saying of like, you know, accepting that you're in pain and that you don't like it and that you need to change it or not changing anything and being miserable. And so you have those four options. And when you really look at them, it often prompts me to want to go and try and make those changes and get to the most optimal. I think we've, Amy and I've talked about before, I think optimal health um, versus like good health or something like that. Instead of saying like, you know, I want to be really healthy. I'm not going to probably be like as healthy as some other people, but I can be my optimal health. And that's like finding radical acceptance, making the changes to get to your optimal health and then accepting like, this is my optimal health. And this is what I have to do to like maintain that. That's not resigning. Like resigning is like, oh, I'm going to lay here and I'm not going to do my stretches because I'm sad that I'm in pain. And of course, there's going to be some nights you resign, but then you got to radically accept you did that last night and get back on the ball the next day, you know? I love the equation that you brought up, which was pain plus non-acceptance equals suffering and pain plus acceptance equals pain. I heard you say that in another interview. And that's when I was like, I have to have them on the show to talk about acceptance. That literal moment when I heard you say that, I was like, they must come on the show (laughs) to talk to me and Brittany about acceptance. Because I just think that is such a brilliant, simple equation to summarize a huge concept, which is what we're talking about today, which is we have our endometriosis and endometriosis sucks and it's horrible and it's devastating and it's heartbreaking. But with non-acceptance, we can, without meaning to, without wanting to, we can add so many more layers of emotional suffering on top of our endometriosis pain or endometriosis diagnosis, the devastation that it's brought to our lives. And for me, that has just been so critical is finding acceptance. Because as you said, with acceptance, it can push us to these various avenues. It can push us to want to make changes or have the incentive or the motivation or the headspace to make changes. Or it can also help us realize that maybe we can't make changes, but we can change ourselves and we can change our perspective and we can change the way that we're looking at the situation. And ultimately, although the situation has not changed, it feels like it's changed because we've changed. I love what you said there and like all of it. 
And I think right now is a great example. We're going through this time where surgeries are being delayed or you can't get surgery or you live somewhere you can't get surgery or you don't have the funds to access surgery or the insurance or what have you. So many reasons that you can't access certain gold standard treatments. In that, instead of deciding, you know, oh, I can't access these good treatments, life is going to be terrible forever and suffering. I mean, I'm going through it right now because I've been waiting for surgery for several years now and really in the last six months, especially. And instead of wallowing in the fact that it's going to take even longer, that I'm going to be in pain even longer, I can say, okay, what can I do around me to make it better? You know, I can get this really nice big stuffed animal to lay behind me when I'm on the couch. I can get extra paint so that I can make sure I'm painting or doing something for me. I can do all of those little things. I can buy extra PT tools for myself. You know, I can do little things that make my life worth living despite the immense amount of pain I'm in. I can't change that pain right now. I, I mean, I wish I could operate on myself. That would be really cool, but I can't. So I have to accept this is where I'm at right now. And that doesn't mean that I like it. And that doesn't mean that it's okay or acceptable or that the standard of care that we are receiving in endometriosis is okay. But it means that I'm going to accept that is what it is right now. You know, in a few years, it might not be that way. And we can push for those changes. But right now, it is that way. And so I have to accept that and use the tools I can. I think it's always important to remember that acceptance isn't resignation. Those two things aren't the same. And the best part about acceptance is that it's actually a skill that we can learn and we can use that's supposed to help our lives be better, to help us to live better with less suffering, not to make our lives worse or make us struggle more. Acceptance can actually give us more freedom because it can lessen our suffering. It can lessen our guilt and our self-judgment and our self-doubt. All of the things that we struggle with can become less with acceptance. In the letters DBT, the D, dialectical, means to balance and compare two things that appear very different or even contradictory. And in DBT, it's balancing acceptance and change, which could be contradictory to many of us who feel like a situation is either accept it and that is what it is, I have to get over it or just deal with it, or accept it and change it. I think that sometimes we get into a trap of thinking that accepting something feels like we just have to give up on it. I accept I have endo, so that is what it is. Oh, well, I just have to accept that that's what my life is and the end. I just live with this suffering and pain forever. But that's not what acceptance actually is. And that's why it's really difficult to understand the difference between these two things, acceptance and resignation. And it's challenging to figure out what we need to accept and what we need to change. So instead of accepting and resigning, accepting and changing can impact us. It can give us skills. It can change so many things that we don't even understand or realize can be changed about ourselves. It changes the way we see things. It changes the way we see our endo and it changes the way we feel about our bodies. But we can't assume that we can't change it and we shouldn't assume that it's impossible to change how we feel. Yes, we can't immediately change things like our pain level, but changing how we feel about it, how we approach it can change our experience of the pain so much. So Maggie, I'd love to know personally for you, how you know what to change and what to accept and what advice you have for other people who are trying to figure that out too. 
when deciding what to accept and what to change, first I have to look at, is there anything I can change? But to determine that, I also then need to look at my emotions and know what I even want to change. Because if you go into trying to change something without actually knowing how you feel about it, you might make the situation worse for yourself. So really identifying how you feel about something and what you want out of a situation is really important. Do you want lower pain levels? Do you want more mental health help? Do you want more comfort in your home so that you can get through flares? Do you want more doctor support? You know, what exactly are your objectives? And then you can look at how do I reach those? Is there anything I can change? You know, if you need a better care team, can you ask your primary for a referral? Can you ask some of your friends in the area who have had surgery, you know, what their experiences are? Can you look at all the different medical options for medications that help with symptom management? There are so many options that you then have to list all of your options and kind of go through and see if you don't have any options or none of those options appeal to you. Well, if none of the options appeal to you, you've got to say, you know, am I being resistant? And am I being willful in not doing this? Am I being against this thing, even though I'm saying I want it to change, even though I'm saying I don't like it? Because sometimes making those changes are difficult, you know? Talking about endometriosis care, it's difficult to decide to go on some of these drugs, or it's difficult to decide to go get a pretty major surgery. It's difficult to decide to spend money on your health that you might not have. It's difficult to make all of those decisions. And so you have to look and say, are these decisions possible? Are there things standing in the way of me making these decisions that I can help? And if there are just roadblocks ahead, then how do you accept? And if you've come up with an action plan, I think this one's really important, especially right now when we're dealing with delayed care. If you've come up with a solution, but you're going to be waiting for that solution, acceptance within that time period can be really important. I think that that's not really talked about enough. You know, I can accept that I'm going to be in pain until I can get care. But I can also say to myself, you know, you've done everything you can. You have appointments scheduled. You have called these doctors. You've made follow-ups. You've done this, that, or the other. And that's all you can do right now, except where you're at. And that kind of leads into some other skills we're going to talk about, like mindfulness and distraction and ways to cope in that time period in between and using those tools for acceptance. Meg, I think everything that you've said is so brilliant and so on point about how we can make that balance between change and acceptance and how we can find what we want to change and what we feel is important to change and we can work towards those changes. But at the same time, we also likely will need to employ acceptance, 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 and potentially patience while we are waiting for the changes to happen. Acceptance if we are trying to make the changes and the changes that we want to make are not going through and the change isn't happening. I think that acceptance, in my opinion, for me, has been one of my hardest skills to learn especially at the beginning. And it's something that I'm still learning. I think that we're ever learning. It's just, it's a practice that we get better at. 
But I think at the beginning, for me, it was so challenging because with acceptance, it's really asking us to look at the situation differently and to have a completely different viewpoint than we were previously having. Because, you know, as you were saying, with the situation, we could be really, we don't want that situation. We are really enraged about the situation. We don't want to have endometriosis. We think endometriosis is horrible because it is horrible and it's devastating. And trying to accept that we have endometriosis, it's almost like it goes against every bone in our body to be like, I have this horrible, incurable disease that is ravaging my life that has taken away so much for me, but I am supposed to accept that I have it. And it almost feels like that resigning and that giving up, you know, with acceptance, I think oftentimes when we're struggling to accept, it's because it's a really difficult situation. You know, we don't typically struggle to accept something great, like, oh my God, you won the lottery. And you're like, oh no, I don't want to win the lottery. You know, you're like, yeah, I won the lottery. Cool. Wonderful. And you accepted that in like two seconds. So we're really struggling to accept bad news, difficult news, news that we don't want. And so, you know, it's learning to relate differently to the things that are going wrong in our life is extraordinarily hard, but at the same time, that's what makes acceptance so life-changing and so transformational is that we've been looking at the situation a certain way for a very long time. And now we're looking at the situation in a different way that previously we felt was impossible to look at the situation in a different way. Maggie, what about you? What do you think is most difficult about practicing acceptance? I think it's about not being bitter. I I tend to be like, oh, okay, I can accept that this is reality, but I still want to be bitter about it. I still want to be mad about it. And yes, that's fair. It's fair to have moments where you're angry that you have endo. And it's okay that those moments will probably happen for the rest of your life. But getting stuck in those moments, I think is the difficult part, getting out of those moments. Because yeah, it's easy to want to be angry. And you just have to allow that anger to not take over and be the main emotion you feel. I also think the other hardest part is when you're faced with making changes that you really don't want to make. I know you've had massive diet changes with uh, your mast cell activation syndrome and things like that. And you were like, I liked my diet. Like I liked, you know my endometriosis, quote unquote, diet, you know, I felt like I was in my groove and I'd accepted that this is how I was eating. And now I've got to change that again. And I don't want to. And I I feel that because I was eating gluten for a short period of time for some tests. So now I've got to go back to no gluten. And I'm like, I want bread tonight. But I have to understand and remind myself that bread makes my insides feel like they're being stabbed and maybe I should try and avoid it uh, and accept that that's how I have to live. But, you know, so that's an easy, silly example, of course, but, you know, it can be hard to make changes you don't want to make in any way. Uh, You know, I just really relate to the part about where you said that it's that like struggle not to be bitter, you know, you're accepting it, but then you're struggling not to be bitter anyways. And as someone who spent over a decade being extremely infuriated and just so 
angry and then living from a place of anger, like having the anger seep into my relationships, my behavior. I mean, just like flying off the handle, fighting with people, screaming at people, just a lot of behavior I'm not proud of that, you know, stemmed from a lot of unresolved anger. I really hear you when you say that working towards acceptance and at the same time working through the emotions around the situation is really difficult. And like you said, I mean, is normal. And I think anger is normal, but then it's not letting that anger turn into bitterness. It's not letting that anger turn into that thing that that you're living from and getting stuck in that emotion. And when I think back at myself and all the anger that I had, and I think, you know, it's justifiable anger because your life is being ruined by this incurable disease. And of course that makes you angry. And there can be other things going on in your life too, and situations that you're facing. And all of those layers can come together to just make you realize like the injustice of so many things in life. And that can make you so furious. But for me, I finally realized in my own case personally that being angry and living from my anger instead of accepting, it wasn't like I thought, oh, if I'm angry, it's because I don't like the situation and it shouldn't be. But all that was doing was putting me in fight or flight. And all that was doing was hurting me. And, you know, because I was so tense all the time, it was causing me more leg pain. It was affecting my ability to digest my food because I wasn't in rest and digest. I was in fight or flight. And I thought by not accepting, this is like a subconscious thought, but you know, it felt like, okay, by not accepting and like being really enraged, it felt like I was doing something, you know, it felt like I had some kind of like power over this helpless situation that felt really out of control. But as it turned out, all it was doing, it wasn't me like defying my endometriosis and being a big like F you to my endometriosis. It was me doing a big, in a way, like kind of a F you to myself and just being like all of that anger affecting my ability to have joy in my life, my ability to have beauty in my life in spite of my endometriosis, even though I still have endometriosis, all my anger was denying me all the other beautiful experiences that I could have as a person with endometriosis. And my reality just became I have endometriosis and I'm angry. And that's not the reality that I want to live from any longer. But I understand why it was there for such a long time. Because I think we don't have these tools that we're talking about today with DBT and acceptance and mindfulness. It's really hard to work through your emotions. It's really hard to practice acceptance if you've never heard about it, learned about it, seen it modeled in your life, experienced it. So I'm so glad we're having this conversation today because I think DBT is a really powerful tool and, you know, we can learn so much from DBT and also from talking about. Yeah, I love what you said. I love everything you said. And it really made me think about how, honestly, to get to this place that you're at now, you didn't just have to accept your endo. You had to accept why you were so angry, that you were so angry. You had to accept that that was a part of getting to the acceptance. You know, I think that that's instead of feeling like, oh, I wasted this time or like I was this, that or the other. That was time that like you needed to be angry because 
Otherwise, you might not have gotten to this place of acceptance. And, you know, otherwise, you might not have realized all the things that you've realized since. And accepting that and moving forward, like accepting that, oh, maybe I wasn't always the best person, or maybe I made mistakes, or maybe I didn't have these skills, you know, instead of looking back on my life prior to DBT and being like, angry that uh, you know nobody taught me these things I can be really excited moving forward that I can share these things with others and I just I heard so much of that similar vein from how you were talking about your angry time and that's the beauty of acceptance you know instead of being angry that you were angry for so long you're able to just accept that you're angry you know Something I've been noticing when both of you are talking about acceptance is these common phrases that you seem to use for yourselves. And I think that's really wonderful because common phrases or sayings that we hold true for ourselves, that we repeat back to ourselves, can become part of who we are and can become part of how we think. That's how our brains work. So saying things like, this is how it is, but what can I do to change it? Or I can't change what's already happened, but I can change what I'm going to do next. Or I can't fight the past, but I can fight for a better future. These phrases that we use to talk to ourselves can become a reality. So I'd love to know, Maggie, if you have any phrases or sayings like that, that you use when you're trying to refocus your reality or you're struggling with a really strong state of non-acceptance. Yeah, I have used ones like, I don't have to like what happened. It happened and it led here and I must move forward because it acknowledges that you don't have to like Indo. You don't have to like what you went through. Another one is I can face these emotions and get through them. I never liked the fake it until you make it. I say face it until you make it. And then another skill that's less of a mantra and more of an action is open hands and half smiles. And it's just a very simple meditation where you have your palms up and open to receiving gratitude and you put on a half smile. It's kind of like how laughing for a minute or something is supposed to be really good for your health and things. Putting on that half smile can allow you to start to maybe try on happiness and see how it would feel to be happy in that moment right then. And Once you start to feel happy, it's kind of hard to want to not feel happy and continue that feeling. And so it allows you to just kind of like move forward into that gratitude space. I love those. Thank you for sharing those. And I think it's important for all of us to find phrases like that for ourselves, because when we're in those moments where we really don't want to accept what's happening, it's easy to fall back into those phrases of my life is suffering. This pain is never going to end. This is terrible. And while those things can be true, they don't help us to move to the next phase. So trying to forge some phrases for yourself is a really great and useful tool that we can all keep to make sure that we're refocusing ourselves in those moments. So now let's move on to the second set of skills that we mentioned in the beginning, and that's the mindfulness skill set. So mindfulness is when we are practicing being present in the moment with ourselves without judging what's happening around us or in our own minds. So I'd love to open with a question to you, Maggie, about mindfulness and how does it help with our emotions and our emotional regulation? 
So I saw a really cool graph recently and somebody, you guys will have to look it up, but it's basically like showing on infrared where emotions live in the body. And so when you feel anger, like which part of your bodies activate and things, I think that was a really important part of understanding how to regulate my emotions was just understanding what my emotions were. Was I angry or was I jealous or was I feeling shame? Because sometimes we can confuse those things and understanding and naming my emotion and doing that non-judgmentally and determining what action urges I had from that then, because each emotion pushes us towards action, (laughs) even if it doesn't control us. And as you get more skilled with emotion regulation, you start to say, you know, okay, this is what my emotion wants me to do. What should I really do? Because sometimes they don't match, you know, sometimes they don't match. You could be angry and you want to yell at somebody, but in reality to fix the problem, you might need to walk away for 10 minutes and calm down, or you might need to have a really calm, cool, collected conversation to get to the root of the issue instead of yelling, even though that's what your anger wants you to do. So I think that was a really important part. And that also got me to really understand my body-mind and the body-mind connection in general. Understanding how my emotions were activating me physically and mentally and how much all of that was connected. Mindfulness has been really important to me to see the facts. And I know that's something that Maggie has said multiple times throughout this episode is trying to see the facts. And I've learned for myself that the objective facts that are as they are, are oftentimes not the quote unquote facts that I have in my mind, because in my mind, the objective facts about a situation have become mixed with a story that I'm telling myself about the situation. They've become mixed with my beliefs, my stories, my thoughts, my emotions about the situation. And for me, mindfulness has been really helpful because it actually helps me separate myself from the judgments that I'm having about the situation and from my emotions so that I can actually see the facts objectively and then like take action from those facts and not take action from my emotions, which is also what Maggie was just saying. You know, when I heard you speak, Maggie, I was thinking about how you're right, that how our emotions, they really propel us to action. And oftentimes in the heat of an emotion, you know, if something happens, if I don't wait, like if I'm angry and I don't cool off, or if I just react like from the emotion that instantly arises, then I oftentimes I react in a way that I don't want to, instead of pausing and then actually responding. So not reacting, but responding intentionally to the situation. So I'd love if we could all share a little bit about techniques that help us to be more mindful or techniques that help us separate ourselves from our emotions or from our thoughts. Something that really helps me is to label my emotions and label my thoughts because oftentimes I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm just feeling like this big overwhelming mess of feelings and I'm having a lot of feelings in my body. You know, maybe I'm feeling hot, my cheeks are flushed or my hands are 
tense or I'm feeling cold or my jaw is tight. And then in terms of my emotions or in terms of my thoughts, like my thoughts are running, I'm ruminating, I'm, you know, worrying nonstop. So for me, something that's helped me be more mindful in my day-to-day life is when I'm in a situation like this, where I'm just feeling overwhelmed, is just to take a minute and to label what I'm feeling. So to take a minute and assess like, okay, I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling panic, or in this moment, I am catastrophizing and I'm going to the worst case scenario. And I think that just really helps me get a layer of separation to try to separate me from my emotions, to separate me from the judgments. That's another one I love to use is judging, right? That's something I think that I do a lot or criticizing, self-criticizing, self-deprecating. So I try to really just take what I'm doing or what I'm feeling and, and say like, okay, here I am and I'm doing X. Here I am and I'm here and also panic is here. Worry is here, but I'm not panic. I'm not worry. What about you, Maggie? What is the way that you practice mindfulness or that you use to separate yourself from your thoughts or the situation around you? First of all, I loved your mantras, like your the things that you the way you separate yourself and you're like, I'm here with this emotion. That's really cool. Um, I like to think of emotions kind of like guests in your home and it's like they're welcome, but you're also have the power to kick them out anytime you want. And that's that's really important. I think that two things I really do is I understand I try and look at my vulnerabilities about the situation. Um, or about the day and really understand like maybe why I'm having such an emotional reaction once I name that emotion. You know, if I've had a really rough day and then somebody says something that isn't really that offensive, but like could be taken the wrong way, I probably will take it the wrong way if I've had a bad day. And so recognizing, you know, what else in my day and really describing all my vulnerabilities, the actual situation the facts of the situation, which like you said, are often different than that initial thought you have. So I think separating myself from that initial thought is that really important step in this like saying, okay, this is my initial thought, but why am I having that thought? I think one of the things that I really struggle with is the concept of spiraling. So when I'm having anxiety over a situation or over a thought that comes into my head, my brain tends to be able to easily find other thoughts to add to it to make it worse. So I can have one small thought. It could be a completely innocuous thought or tiny thought that really isn't that consequential, but my brain will add a thought to it that makes it worse or makes it scarier or makes it more difficult. And then my brain will find all these little ways to like a little magnet, pull up all these shards of conversation or all these ideas and thoughts that make the molehill into a mountain in my brain. And so what I have to do is I have to call out that original thought and kind of tell myself how utterly ridiculous it is to go how I went from A to Z and say, you started with, oh, my partner is late home from work by one minute to he must be dead on the side of the road and my whole world is going to end. And now I'm going, everything is crumbling beneath me. And how did you go from zero to 60 in a tiny, in a moment, in a minute? And so kind of chiding myself a little bit or calling out and making myself realize how ridiculous it is that I went to zero to 60 and bringing myself back to the reality of a minute late means nothing. That's silly. Like why, why are we going all the way to the extreme? 
is something that I have to practice a lot because my brain likes to do that, likes to spiral out of control if I let it, if I don't get a handle on it and bring myself back to the present moment. Brittany, I love that you have learned the ability to laugh at yourself, you know, and to take what your brain does in stride and say to yourself, okay, brain, I know where you're going with this. You've done this before. I had this tiny little molehill and now I'm constructing an enormous mountain out of nothing. And, you know, you've done this once, you've done this twice, you've done this 10 billion times. And I love that you have that ability now to recognize that your brain does this, that you do this, and to take that and just kind of laugh about it and be like, Brittany, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? And I think that a really important aspect of looking at ourselves, of looking at the ways that we react instead of respond, looking at our thought patterns, at our habits, at our conditioning that, you know, we're trying to change. I think a really important aspect of that is having self-compassion. Because I think there's a huge difference between like laughing at yourself and being like, oh my gosh, here I go again from zero to 60. He's one minute late. And there I am imagining, you know, calling his mom, making funeral arrangements. And you're like, wow, you're a bit ridiculous. Like calm down. But there's a difference between saying like, haha, you're ridiculous. And being like, what the heck is wrong with you? Why are you going from zero to 60 again? This is unbelievable. And having all of that self-criticism, because then that brings in another layer of emotional pain and of suffering, which doesn't help at all. And I think it can be really hard to show ourselves self-compassion, especially if no one has ever showed it to us before. And some of the first times that we practice self-compassion, it can feel really uncomfortable. If we aren't used to talking to ourselves with gentleness and kindness, it can feel really weird and uncomfortable and just like, no, I, ew, this is wrong. And you want to fall back into that pattern of self-criticism. Maggie, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you have found self-compassion to be helpful while doing DBT and practicing acceptance and emotional regulation. Acceptance and self-compassion particularly was something that was really hard to develop. Because like you said, you know, when you're not taught that, when you're not shown that, how do you give that? I started to try to look at my life or the situations I was in or had been in as if it were happening to somebody else or to a friend of mine. And once I started to, you know, look at it that way and more with the facts and objectively, I stopped wanting to give the compassion to someone else. And I really actually wanted to give that compassion to myself. I, I started looking and I was like, you know, I would give this compassion to a friend. So like, why am I holding it back from myself? And it made me all the more eager to give that self-compassion to myself once I realized that I would give it in tenfold to a friend without a second hesitation. And I think that looking at yourself and saying like, you know, I survived these things that somebody else may not have survived. I did these incredible things and I deserve a self hug. I deserve a little bit of love today. I deserve, you know, like you said, if somebody's never given you compassion, if people didn't give you hugs when you were a kid or something, give yourself a hug and, and really give yourself that compassion that you didn't have specifically. 
and that compassion you would give to a friend, give that like in tenfold to yourself. I also wanted to mention something that's not quite DBT, but that goes in line with all of this stuff. I recently started doing parts work and that is looking at the different parts of ourselves, quote unquote, and that's the different things we embody in our mind. I don't know if you've seen the movie Inside Out, but it's basically kind of like that and how you have these parts that are created at different times in your life and by different experiences and they harbor that experience and they harbor that emotion and that role that they played in your life. And they continue to do that in your head, you know, inside out, it's like a little thing going on in her head with like five different characters or emotions, you know, kind of taking the reins. We have parts in ourselves that sometimes take the reins and stuff. And learning to have compassion for those parts has been the biggest part of self-compassion that has like made the most difference for me. So we talk about books later at the end, and there's a book on that that I'll definitely recommend. I like what you've said about the parts and these different parts of ourselves. And I think for me, Self-compassion also has come back to kind of what we're talking about today with acceptance and DBT is that balance of self-compassion and change. You know, I think in the past it was hard for me to have self-compassion because I felt like I've made a lot of mistakes and I've hurt people and I've acted in ways that I don't like in my past. And I think it's been hard to give myself compassion. It's been hard to give myself forgiveness. And now I'm trying to have self-compassion and change and acceptance and change. So I've been learning to say to myself things like, yes, I've made mistakes and I have regrets and I still deserve to have love and safety and peace and happiness in my life. Yes, I don't like everything from my past, but I can accept my past. And at the same time, I can work to have a better future with better behavior, better coping mechanisms, less self-destructive behaviors. So for me, I think a big part of self-compassion has been, you know, I can give myself that hug and say, it's okay that you've acted this way or no one's perfect. And I will also strive to do better. So for me, it's like, again, what we've been saying about, you know, how acceptance isn't resignation and the same thing, like in the terms of self-compassion for me, it's like self-compassion doesn't mean that I love the way that I've acted and I've loved everything that I've done in my past or even like right in this present moment. But I can just say like, I'm doing my best and I will keep learning and improving so I can do better. One of the most important parts of having compassion for ourselves is being able to treat ourselves well and being able to do things for ourselves that we want to do and honoring what we want to do rather than what we may feel an impulse to do or what we may have done in the past. And there's a skill that goes along with this, and it's essentially distracting yourself from what you're feeling at the current moment in order to take a step back and calm down and center yourself to use a healthy coping mechanism instead of acting on impulse or doing something that you may have previously done that you no longer want to do or acting in a way that causes you to avoid what you're feeling rather than distract yourself momentarily to then deal with the feeling. So 
to go further in on the concept of avoidance, what distraction is, isn't avoiding what you're feeling. It's not doing something to not feel your feelings or to put them away for later, a little bit later, but not a long time later. We're not talking bottle them up here. What distraction is, is taking that pause to gather yourself and gather your thoughts. When we're dealing with strong emotions or we're dealing with pain or we're dealing with a feeling that comes up suddenly or a feeling that is from trauma or a deep emotional place, it can be very overwhelming. And those overwhelming feelings can cause us to respond in ways that we don't want to or ways that we have responded in the past that are destructive or can harm us or are painful to us. That emotional driven behavior that's rash or drastic or unhealthy or can cause us harm has unwanted consequences on top of being a behavior that we don't want. They can make us feel worse. They can make us judge ourselves. They can make us feel guilty or feel shame. And adding that to whatever experience or situation we're dealing with can just put us in a position where it's even harder for us to then move into the phase of acceptance. So with distraction and self-soothing, it's about finding techniques and behaviors that we can rely on that aren't unhealthy, that aren't self-destructive, and that we want to do and that we feel good about doing. So we could have a coping mechanism like when we're experiencing a strong emotion in order to numb ourselves or to avoid dealing with the emotion, we may do something like spending money, overspending money, going shopping or online shopping. This could be something that we do to distract ourselves, not in the good way, to distract ourselves in order to avoid the feeling. Or we could use it to distract ourselves for a temporary amount of time with no intent on dealing with the feeling. And then when it comes back, it comes back stronger because we have been ignoring it. Or we utilize that coping mechanism of overspending. And then the next morning we wake up and we've realized that we spent our entire paycheck and now we can't pay rent or we can't pay our bills or None of the things that we bought were things that we actually wanted. And now we have to deal with the self-judgment and the self-criticism and the shame that can come as a result of an unhealthy coping mechanism. So finding mechanisms to default to that don't harm us in any way, either mentally, physically, or financially, that's important to find. So Maggie, I'd love to know some distraction techniques that have been helpful for you and how you use them and what the benefits have been for you. Yeah. And I love what you said about it not being something unhealthy or maladaptive. It's kind of like acceptance versus resignation. It's that whole not doing something that's going to hurt you and only doing something that's going to add to your day and to your life. I use distraction whenever I'm too far out of my window of tolerance, which is the good place to live with your emotions because if you get above your window of tolerance personally for me it's like screaming yelling uncontrolled emotion just all of those bad things come up you know being reckless and just those kinds of things and then there's being below your window of tolerance and that's being disassociated depressed laying in bed all day and those are examples for me personally so Distraction is a good one to use to keep you in your window of tolerance, uh, like any good crisis skill. It also is really good when you have pain. I think that distraction can be a great one. It's really good to distract yourself. Like right now, I'm waiting on excision surgery. And if I'm in certain types of pain, 
to distract myself, I will put on some nice yoga and stretch or go on a walk or do cooking, which is my favorite mindful activity. Just love smelling the spices and tasting things and doing stuff like that. But if I'm in other types of pain, really high pain, then I'm going to medicate and put on some reality TV and pet my cats and, you know, check on my internet friends and do those kinds of things to distract myself, less movement-based things. And so I think it's about finding emergency distraction tools that are going to be healthy for you and that aren't going to be just ignoring the pain. You know, I said I had problem solved. I already had a plan for my treatment of my endometriosis. So the distraction is what's helping me get to that plan and get through the time waiting for that plan. It's kind of like if something really triggering comes up and you have therapy in two days, you don't have to try and problem solve it on your own if it keeps overactivating you and getting you really up overwhelmed or anxious or something. You can distract yourself and deal with it with your therapist, but like Brittany was saying, it's not about just shoving it down and making it disappear and never thinking about it again. It's really about making sure you just stay within your window and that you are dealing with it in an appropriate time and manner and not over worrying about it. I'm a perfectionist, and so I tend to go a little bit too hard. And research for too many hours, like my endo stuff, like I'll sit and I'll be researching and my therapist says, you know, it's just like a regular job. You need days off. You need time off. You need to distract yourself sometimes. So it's not all negative, but it's also not avoiding dealing with an issue. But doing things that make you feel good and add to your life. So. I really like what you said, Maggie, about being in the window of tolerance, like your window to be able to effectively deal with the situation before you. I've never heard it phrased that way, but I just, I really like it. You know, to my mind comes like you have this threshold and when you're over the threshold, like I can see myself being in a state of panic, fear, overwhelm. And when I'm having those kinds of emotions, natural emotions, of course, to very difficult situations, I'm not able to think clearly. You know, I'm not able to take the steps that I want to take. I'm more apt to turn to my unhealthy coping mechanisms, which as Brittany didn't mean to call me out, but did. I am a retail therapy. That is how I primarily have dealt in the past and getting really angry and just like screaming at people. But also like the pull to shop when I feel sad or when I feel overwhelmed is really, really strong. And a situation comes to mind that I had a problem with my tooth and I realized that I had to go to the dentist. And now that I have the mast cell activation syndrome, going to the dentist can be a really big trigger for people with mast cell and triggers can last an extended period of time. So if I have a mast cell attack, basically, you know, oftentimes it's not just one day, it can last for three days, five days, a week, a month, six weeks, and they can be really hard to come out of. And I can go into this like continuous flare cycle that takes a lot of time to come out of. And when I realized I had to go to the dentist for this tooth problem that I was having, I became really panicked. I became really, really afraid. I kind of just shut down. And I also just really wanted to go on Amazon and buy home goods, 
you know, I really was like, I need a new rug. I need curtains. And the other thing is I don't really have any of these things because all of my stuff is like from secondhand. So it probably wouldn't be bad if I just like bought myself a shower curtain, you know, I could probably like replace the stuff that I have, but I actually don't want to do that because I actually have a priority right now to save my money for my treatments so that I can be able to in the future afford pelvic floor therapy and other treatments that I want to do. So to be honest, the last thing that I wanted to do was to go like blow a hundred dollars online and a bunch of like beautiful green matching home goods that will look so beautiful in my apartment, but that I wasn't going to get, but I really wanted, but I wasn't going to get, but I desperately wanted anyways, you can see the battle there, you know, and in that moment, I realized like, yes, this is a perfect time of when I need distraction technique, because what I really needed in that moment was I needed to do some research about the dentist. You know, I need to make an appointment, but I also needed to do research about like how I could pre-medicate prior to the dentist to avoid flares. I needed to get in contact with my mast cell doctor. There was a whole bunch of things that I actually needed to do to be prepared for the appointment, but I was so overwhelmed and so just like emotionally upset that I, I couldn't handle any of that. And all I wanted to do was turn to destructive coping mechanisms like retail therapy that were only going to shovel me deeper into feeling like garbage. Because as soon as I went and I blew my money, (laughs) spent my money on beautiful like rugs, my bathroom, bath mats and things. Yeah. I'd feel happy for a few minutes, but then I would be angry at myself and disappointed and like, Oh, you know, why couldn't you control yourself and the guilt and the shame and, you know, and then have another problem because it would arrive and I'd have, you know, send it back and pay it. And anyways, you can see how having an unhealthy coping mechanism or not having something healthy that I could turn towards in a moment of crisis could just push me deeper into my suffering. I am proud to say that I did not order anything on Amazon. I went into the closet, which I like to hang out in the closet. I brought a kitty with me. I put on a candle. I brought a fluffy blanket and I got some really relaxing music and I just cried and cried for like three hours, just about how unfair everything was. And I just said, today you cry, tomorrow you deal with it. And yeah, and that, you know, was my, I guess, distraction technique. It doesn't seem like I was distracting myself, I guess, because I was like crying and stuff, but I was distracting myself from the emotional impulse, like the destructive urge to shop or like to eat or to do things that I, I didn't want to do. I was like, crying is good for me. Crying is therapeutic. Like crying is being with my emotions for me, learning to have better coping mechanisms that I can turn to, whether that be crying, whether that would be taking a walk, whether that's coloring or cooking or just watching a movie or something, obviously different situations call for different coping techniques, but learning better coping techniques have helped me feel prouder of myself in the long run. They've helped me feel like I'm more in control of my challenges and more in control of myself. And it's helped me have a different relationship with my life. And I think that's really important because when we have endometriosis, we have chronic illness, life is so challenging. And just even feeling like I am handling it well, you know, and better than I've handled it in the past. And I can see that growth. And that just makes me feel really proud. All right, everyone, I think this is a great place to end today's episode. There is actually more to our interview with Maggie. We do talk about interpersonal skills. 
but that's another 30 minutes or so. So we wanted to break this episode down into two parts, make it a little more digestible and also make it easier for me for that part of editing. So we really want to thank you for listening today. We want to thank Maggie for coming on the show. We are really enjoying our chat with them and we've been learning so much and we cannot wait to come back with part two in the next episode to talk more with Maggie about interpersonal skills. Thank you so much for listening and you can find links in today's show notes to find Maggie on social media, to find Maggie's books. And like I said, we'll be back next week with more.